Hi, Fun Seekers. Welcome to another edition of the Christ is All podcast. In 2006, I had an amazing opportunity to spend a full year with a hungry group of Christians in the book of Ephesians. We spent the first six months exploring the riches of Christ in Ephesians 1. And the rest of the year, we covered the rest of the letter. During that year, I took this group of Christians on a guided tour of Jesus Christ and God's eternal purpose in Him. A number of new songs came out of that experience, as well as creative art and scores of glorious meetings, not to mention radically changed lives. I'm sorry you couldn't be there, but what follows is one of the messages I delivered during that year. Beginning June 2020, we're going to be releasing all of the messages in that series in a new masterclass entitled Untraceable Riches, Ephesians in 3D. If you would like to be notified on how to obtain that masterclass and all of those messages, go to frankviola.org forward slash classes and you will be sent an email on how to obtain them. Enjoy the message. God has a dream. God had a dream from eternity. And the dream was so important to him, and it was so close to his heart, and it was so holy and so sacred that he did not want it to get foiled. And he did not want it to be cheapened, and he did not want to lose it, so he kept it hidden for ages until the right moment and then he let it out of the bag and when he did God's enemy turned pale we are right now at the place in Ephesians where Paul is going to unveil the mystery the great mystery of God the great mystery of Christ but be careful because when he talks about it in Ephesians 3 and this is where we are now He doesn't give a full picture of it. He just takes a portion of it, an aspect of it, and he shows it to us. I have to tell you that I am not doing justice to this letter. We are just putting a blade in the surface. There was a co-worker of Watchman Knees who spoke on Ephesians for a specific amount of time, and he delivered 97 messages on Ephesians. My own feeling is... We need at least 100 messages on Ephesians to adequately cover the riches that are in it. And even in his 97 messages, he doesn't cover a lot. So please understand that when this is all said and done, you have gotten an introduction. But I hope that by God's grace, I'm giving you the heart of it in a clear way. Ephesians 3 is an incredible chapter. It's... Not quite as incredible as Ephesians 1, in my opinion, but nevertheless it's incredible because he unveils the great mystery of Christ. I would like to bring 15 messages out of Ephesians 3. 15 messages on that one chapter. I feel like that's the only way I can adequately do it. But 
I'm not going to bring 15 messages because we're under a time constraint. We'll do it in a year. We'll get through the whole book. And we're going to cover verses 1 to 7 of Ephesians 3. And I'm going to kind of introduce the chapter. So, with that said, let us turn to Ephesians 3. And we're going to do a very slow paced job at looking at the first seven verses. And what I'm going to ask you to do is to interrupt me at any point with a comment. This is very scriptural, by the way. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, if someone is sharing a word and another person gets a revelation, in other words, they get an insight, let them interrupt the first person speaking, which would be me. So I welcome you to interrupt. I don't know if you noticed this, but have you noticed that when I bring these messages, oftentimes I will deliver them in a different way, in a different style. Mm-hmm. What are the opening words of Ephesians 3? For this, For this reason. What does that tell us about what's in Paul's mind? If he says the word, for this reason, we ought to stop. For this reason means that Paul has in mind, in his heart, everything that he said up to this point. So let's review. In Ephesians 1, Paul opened up with what God was doing in Christ before creation, in eternity past. And then as he was doing that, as he was unveiling the riches of Christ in Ephesians 1, he then moved up to eternity future and showed us what the eternals look like in the future after creation is done with. So he brought us out of space-time and he brought us into the unseen realm and he caused us to look behind the eyes of God. And we saw the riches of Christ. We saw the riches of Christ in the church. We saw that there's a mutual inheritance, that God inherits the church and the church inherits God. Uh, We saw that every spiritual blessing in heavenly places had been given to the church and that they dwell in us now. We also saw that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, which destroyed death, is now working in the church. So, Ephesians 1 is incredible, and uh, there's no way we can adequately review it, but he did bring us before time, before creation, and he brought us at the very end as well, after creation. It's electrifying. The whole chapter is electrifying. And it's one of the most difficult chapters to understand too because Paul, you know, he comes out of the gate blazing. He doesn't stop. Verses 3 to 14 are one sentence. It's the longest sentence in the New Testament. He's piling superlative upon superlative. He exhausts human language to try to describe to us the richness of God's grace, the glory of His grace, the riches of His grace. And uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the pen strikes. And Paul is just glowing with the riches of Christ and the glories of Christ in the church. So it's an incredible piece of literature. Now when Paul's writing this, he's an old man. He's like uh, 56 years old and he's in prison. Does anybody know what the average lifespan of a male was during that day? Yeah, 45 years old. So he's ancient. When he's writing this, according to first century standards. And this is his gospel. And he moves from Ephesians 1, 
talking about the glories of God's grace and he breaks out into bedlams of praise and he goes into this incredible prayer for revelation that the church would receive a revelation of everything he's talking about. A revelation of Jesus Christ. Then he gets into chapter 2, which by the way back then they weren't broken up in chapters. And now he talks about how the church looks in the eyes of God on earth but through heavenly eyes. And Paul tells us that when God looks at the church, he sees five things. One of them is he sees the masterpiece of God. God's masterpiece. That's what he sees when he looks at the church. He sees a building. He sees the house of God, a temple. And then he also sees a new man, a new humanity. Remember the Jew and Gentile, the the wall partition is broken down, and now he sees one new race, one new species. He also sees a nation, a holy nation. He also sees a family that belongs to him. And I want to impress this upon you. When he is speaking in this letter, he is talking to a series of house churches in Asia Minor. He's talking to Christians that live as community. They gather together in homes. They don't have a leader over them. Their church planter is Epaphras, who's visiting Paul and talking to him, and that's what provoked him to write this letter. So when when he talks about the building of God, and God's going to live in you, and God's going to express himself through you, he's talking to those little house churches. That's what the Lord sees when he looks down. He sees the churches, God's people gathering together, because that's all there was in the planet then. And they were the very family of God. They called each other brother and sister. They said God was their father. And they lived like a family. And they expressed Christ together. So I want you to get the scene, because so often when we say church, we think of so many different things that didn't even exist in the first century. This is important because when God looks at, when he looks at this fellowship, he sees a habitation. He sees a masterpiece. He sees a family, his own. He sees a shot at having a house where he can dwell and express himself freely. This kind of turns our perspective toward how serious this is to the Lord. It's everything to him. It's what he's wanted from the beginning. And I I want to make a comment about this. If God sees the church, and just think of the, the saints in this room, the brothers and sisters who we gather with, if he views this as being his house, and we know that it's also the bride of Jesus Christ too, an aspect of his bride, a portion of his bride. Uh, but that's not Ephesians 2. He talks about Ephesians 5. We're not at the bride yet. If he sees the church as being inseparable from himself, his body, his own body, then what are the implications of that when it comes to how we treat one another, how we care for one another, what kind of priority we put on the church? I want somebody to read this passage because it's pretty heavy duty here. Philippians 2, 19-21. Somebody read that, please. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Paul's saying to a particular church, this is the church in Philippi. By the way, if you don't know what the church in Philippi is, it's one of the oldest churches in the first century. Uh, They're about 12 years old when Paul wrote to them. It's mostly women in this church. 
they meet in homes in Philippi. And Paul says, he's in prison now. And he says, I am very concerned about your condition. He wants, to, he cares for the church. He cares for her. He sees her as a woman. He sees her as God's house. And he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you. Timothy is a Christian worker that Paul trained. And he says, he will care for your state. And then he makes this arresting statement. What's that last statement he says in verse 21? They all care for their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Not to those of Jesus Christ. Now what does that then mean about the interests of Jesus Christ? Tell me, what is the interests of Jesus Christ according to that passage? It's the church, see? He was saying, I only have Timothy who cares enough about you, church in Philippi, to come there. And then he ends with a statement, for so many others care about their own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ. Meaning that that church in Philippi is the interests of Jesus Christ. So here I have a point, saints. I want you to remember this. When you love the church, you're loving the Lord. When you take care of the church, you're taking care of Jesus Christ. When you give yourself to the church, you're giving yourself to the Lord. When you devote yourself to one another, you're devoting yourself to the Lord. See, in God's mind, He doesn't see the difference. We're inseparable from Him. This ought to affect us in some way, our viewpoint. Because it's the next logical thing that if the church is inseparable from Christ, if it's His body and His house, it's His masterpiece. It's His home. And now look at it through different eyes. This is helpful to us because we're taking the view of God. And then, of course, this ties into how He views us. He views us as holy and blameless. Which, by the way, sisters who live together, you will have to remind yourselves. And we have to remind one another because, let me tell you something, we're going to forget. We will look at one another with natural eyes. For this reason, so he now has just talked about how that the churches in Asia Minor, these little house churches, with new converts who are mostly Gentile and former heathens, former heathens, blood-drinking heathens, people who were involved in gross immorality during that day, very, very common. These people are now the very dwelling place of God. And then, with that in mind, Paul now launches into... A prayer, he's welling up with a prayer that he's going to pray that's come out of Ephesians 2 where he talks about the house of God, but he interrupts the prayer abruptly. So let me just say something that's going to help you. Verses 2 to 13 are a parenthesis. Verses 2 to 13 of Ephesians 3 are a big parenthesis. See, when he said, for this reason... He was getting ready to go into a prayer, but then he stopped and said, wait a minute, I want to talk a little bit about my unique ministry to you Gentiles in Asia Minor. And he gets off talking about that, and then he comes back in verse 14, and he begins the second prayer in Ephesians. Which, if you read it, has everything to do with the house of God, the dwelling place of God. Let's continue. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus... Alright, for a thousand dollars. Where is Paul right now when he's writing this? He's in house arrest, which he is a prisoner. He's chained to a guard. Where is he? He's in Rome. Good. For double or nothing. In the eyes of natural man, who is he the prisoner of? Be more specific than Rome. There's an emperor on the throne right now. 
Nero, yes. Now this was written in 2000. This was written in 61 AD. Now in three years, three years, that man who has imprisoned Paul is going to go on a savage, brutal rampage. And he's going to inhumanely torture and murder the brothers and sisters in the church in Rome. And this is historical, what he does to them. It's unbelievable. Find out what happened in 64 AD and find out what Nero did to the Christians. Slaughter doesn't come close to it. It's inhumane. I don't even want to talk about it. It's so disturbing. But there's only three years away from this and Paul's writing this letter from Rome. And some of the saints who will end up being murdered are in that home with Paul tending to his needs. This phrase, I am the prisoner of Jesus Christ, is pregnant with meaning. Here is a man that does not look through the eyes of the human element. He doesn't look through the eyes of the natural. In the natural, he's a prisoner of Nero. But he doesn't view it that way. He sees himself as the prisoner of the Lord Jesus. And here's a point. Paul understood the sovereignty of God and he had a Christ-centered reference point where everything that happened to him in his life he understood as having a relationship to Jesus Christ. He is not only a child of God, a son of God, but he's a sent one from God. And he did not say, I'm a prisoner of Satan. Satan put me here. He didn't say, I'm a prisoner of Nero. He said, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He understood that it was for the Lord that he was there suffering. And he understood that it was the hand of God that brought him there. Even though the circumstances were hellish that got him there. I have known men, young men, who were as on fire for Jesus Christ as any person in this room who appeared to love the Lord just as much as any person in this room but when suffering came into their life they filed for divorce meaning they divorced the Lord and today they are not following Jesus Christ anymore I know two men in particular who had a call in their life and I knew them well in their early 20s to their into their mid 20s and God did not meet their expectations they are not following the Lord today they are chasing after other gods both of them are in Egypt serving another master building a house for him they would not say that they were a prisoner of Jesus Christ they didn't have that reference point. There will come suffering into your life. I'll speak to all of you. And there will also come suffering and loss and pain for following the Lord the way you're doing now. At that moment, especially when it doesn't meet your expectations, when it's outside the boundary of what you expect, and what you think God should do in your life. At that moment, you will discover if you are following Jesus Christ or Santa Claus. Do you understand what I mean? Santa Claus is give, 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 give. Jesus Christ will shower you 
with intangible riches but at the same time he will lure you up a hill and you'll turn around and you'll see a cross and it's at that moment where you will have a decision to make so Paul is a prisoner of Jesus Christ does not enter into his radar that he's a prisoner of Nero by the way he eventually was martyred he was beheaded by Nero but that's not how he viewed it he was a drink offering voluntarily giving his life to his Lord and he actually said that in 2nd Timothy the time is coming I am offering myself as a drink offering to my Lord brothers and sisters I want to challenge you, I want to charge you to take upon yourself a Christ-centered reference for your life. That everything that happens to you, you're able to see the hand of God behind it. When Paul said this, he wasn't bitter. He was communicating something to these saints. That I'm suffering for the highest, most high cause there is. And there's only one cause to suffer for, and that's the cause of the Lord in his interests so there's great meaning here and I don't want you to forget it and this is one of the easiest things to forget is when you're going through fire you forget who the Lord is you forget who you are it can really discourage you and that's one of the reasons why God invented the church to remind one another of who he is for us and in us and that all things are related to Jesus Christ. He will use this term, prisoner of the Lord, four times in his other letters. He's very clear. He doesn't move from it. Have you ever seen somebody follow the Lord and turn away from the Lord because things got rough? You ever watch that? It's perplexing sometimes, too, especially if you see that they really had a walk. But when things go wrong in our life, it lays bare our motive. Our motives for serving and following Jesus Christ get laid bare. They're exposed. So keep that in mind. I like what Jim Elliott said. It's an anointed statement. He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's a statement worth remembering, especially if you're going through a time of suffering and loss. And he wrote that seven years before he was martyred for the Lord. Okay, the next thing he says, I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. Now he's not blaming them, but he's saying the reason why I'm in prison is for your sake. It's because of my commission to you heathens, you Gentiles. Okay, now, can anybody tell us how he got put in prison? What caused him to get thrown in prison? Why is he sitting in a jail in Rome right now, chained to a guard? Okay, he appealed to Caesar. That's what got him on a boat. You remember the shipwreck? He got to Rome. But before that, what initially got him to put him in a position where he had to appeal to Caesar? He almost got killed. Do you remember where it was? Wasn't it the temple like he somewhere Yes. He was it was in Jerusalem. And the whole reason why he was in Jerusalem, do you know why he even got to Jerusalem? Why he even went there? Yes. Excellent. Because he was taking a collection of money from all the Gentile churches that he worked with. 
to bring that money to Jerusalem to bless the Jerusalem church because they were going through chronic poverty and he wanted to show that there's unity between the Gentile churches and the Jewish churches. Now many of the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, hated Paul, wanted him dead because he was going around saying, you don't need the law of Moses which is blasphemy to a Jew. And even the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, many of them didn't like Paul because they believed that even though you're saved through faith, you still have to keep the law. And he went around preaching that you don't have to. The law's been crucified. So he couldn't win for losing. I mean, he, he had both the unbelieving Jews after him. He had some of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that wanted him put off the road. And so when he went to Jerusalem to bring that money to the Jerusalem church, which he did, certain events happened where Jews who were opposed to him almost killed him because they thought he was desecrating the temple, which he wasn't. And the Roman guards took him and put him in jail. And he was in jail at Caesarea Philippi for two years, and then he appealed to Caesar, and now he's sitting there in Rome. So it really was because of his mission to the Gentiles that he suffered and here's a man who would not let up come hell or high water he was going to follow his Lord and the stewardship that God gave him and that is the next passage this is where he breaks off into this abrupt parenthesis verse 2 if indeed you have heard the stewardship of God's grace I'm going to stop right there uh, other versions have different words for stewardship does anybody have a version that says administration okay does anybody have a version that says dispensation? Alright. Administration. Let me explain what a steward is. This is very important. The word stewardship means administration. It comes from the Greek word okonomia. And it means a household administration. What a steward was, he was a, he was a very trusted slave who lived in the master's house for a long time, gained the master's trust, and he took care of the business end of the master's wealth. He did his master's bidding and he administered the wealth of the master. He was a steward. He was very trusted. And that steward worked for the interests of the master, not his own interest. And Paul says, I am a steward of the grace of God. I am a trusted slave of Jesus Christ and I have been made a steward over His grace, the riches of His grace. And here we have a picture of God as a wealthy landowner. He has a big family and Paul is a steward in the household of God. And God has phenomenal riches. Phenomenal riches. And Paul is one of His stewards to dispense those riches to God's people. And when those riches get dispensed, when God's people, you and me, partake of those riches and enjoy those riches together, you have a building that grows up. The church is produced. Something for God to dwell in and express himself through. He's a caretaker of God's grace. And I have said this to you before, but I'll say it again. We are in short supply in Christianity today of a revelation of Jesus Christ and of the grace of God. And I'll tell you one thing, if you have a revelation of Jesus Christ, you're going to have a revelation of His grace. And His grace is His unearned, unmerited favor that brings with it the very empowerment of God Himself. And Jesus Christ is grace incarnated.
And so Paul is a steward of grace. Now, he says, which was given to me for you. So let me read the whole thing. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. He was a steward of God's grace, not for himself, but for the churches. The revelation he had of God's grace was not to make him a super apostle. It wasn't to make him famous. It wasn't to give him a worldwide ministry. It was for the building up of the house of God. It was for the churches. And God's grace gave him two things. Listen carefully. One, a revelation of the mystery. And two, an administration, a commission, to take that revelation and to dispense it into the lives of God's people. So it wasn't just the revelation he had. It was to go and proclaim that revelation and then to administer it and to show God's people how to take it to themselves so that they could enjoy the riches of Christ and so that they can experience those riches. He was a steward to proclaim, to make known this revelation and to give it to God's people to show them how to experience it. And this has special meaning for me, brothers and sisters, because I sit here this afternoon as a steward of grace. Above everything else that I am, I'm a steward of God's grace. And that stewardship is not for me. It's for you. It's for the building up of the church. And I take that stewardship very seriously. It's a very holy and sacred thing. And I'll tell you what, there's a price attached to it. There's a cost attached to it. What would happen if I said, and this is this is the simple, this is at a very low level here. I mean, I, I can... I can go into so much more, but what if I said, you know what, I don't really feel like going to that meeting today and sharing. I'm just going to take a vacation for six months and watch my favorite TV program Sunday afternoon. And gosh, I'm supposed to meet with the brothers on Friday night or Thursday night or Wednesday night and my favorite program comes on that day and I just and the plus I've been working all day writing and I don't feel like seeing those guys and where would the church be? Watching our programs. <laughs> we all be doing what most Americans do and that's live their life for themselves. I take this stewardship very seriously. Would to God that there would be men and women who the Lord would raise up to be stewards of His grace. I am burdened to find young men who are called to the Lord. And I hope God brings them our way. Who are called to be stewards of His grace. We need more traveling men who do this. We're in short supply of it, brothers and sisters. But there's something even greater than this. Do you realize that part of my stewardship, part of my stewardship is to make you, the church, stewards of God's grace and the riches of His grace. Do you realize that? My stewardship is to pass it on to you as the people of God. And that's why I'm sitting in this room this afternoon. And that's why I come to these meetings and I share with you. That's why we're going through Ephesians the way we're going through it. It's important to the Lord. But Paul was a steward of God's grace and he wanted the churches in Asia Minor to know that. Even though many of them never met him. He wanted them to know that he was sent, he was called, and he was doing this 
not because he wanted to, because God was driving him to do it. And you can read, there's a passage in, there's two passages, I'm just going to reference them. You don't have to read them now, but in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 17, he talks about his stewardship, a trusted slave. God has commissioned him to share the riches of God's grace and the mystery, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And he says, if it was up to me, I wouldn't be doing this. I don't want to do this. But God has given me a stewardship, and I must. I have to. And you realize that all the stuff that that man suffered, I mean, it's unbelievable. I read 2 Corinthians 11. The guy was, he went through it. Eventually gave his life for this. But he had a revelation of his Lord and of what God called him that, that drove him. And there's another passage. It's in 1 Corinthians 4.1. It says, We are the stewards of the mysteries of God, and God calls a steward to be faithful. A steward is called to be faithful. To be faithful. I'm trying to do one thing, just to be faithful. I don't care if I succeed, although it would be nice. But success is not within my viewpoint, and failure isn't either. It's being faithful. Being faithful. And I give that word to you all. Be faithful with what the Lord has given you. If you be faithful with the little that God has given you, and I'm speaking to you corporately now as a church, then God will give you more. Be faithful with the little things and the Lord will add more to you. And you know I'm quoting Jesus right now, right? He that is faithful in little will be faithful in much. So Paul's a steward. And now he gets into the mystery. And this is verse 3. That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. As I wrote before in brief. Now... Paul has written before in brief about the mystery in this very letter. And the first time he mentioned it was in chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. Can we have somebody read chapter 1, verse 9 and 10? Let's read his brief comment about the mystery. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Okay, now right there he mentions briefly what the mystery is. But brothers and sisters, be careful. It's only one aspect of the mystery. The mystery of God is like a holograph. You know what a holograph is? You you turn it one way and you get a different picture. Then you turn it a little bit further and another picture emerges. And then you turn it further and another picture emerges. That's what the mystery is like. Now one aspect of the mystery, he mentions it here in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. That is that all things in heaven and earth will be summed up in Jesus Christ. Christ will be the sum of everything. But that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is in Ephesians 2, verse 15, where he says that God has created out of these two races, Jew and Gentile, one new human. One new humanity. One new person. One new species. That's another aspect of it. And so now what he's going to do is he's going to even fill in some more blanks and add more of what this mystery is about. Verse 4. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. 
Alright, now all Paul is saying here is that you, the church in Colossae, the church in Laodicea, the church in Heropolis, the churches in Asia Minor, you really need to understand what this mystery is. I wish for you to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This mystery has already been made known. It's in the New Testament. But do you know something? It required revelation of the Holy Spirit for Paul to see it. That's verse 3. By revelation, God made known to me the mystery. But do you know something? It's still, even though it's open, even though it's unveiled, it still requires a revelation of the Holy Spirit to understand what it is. And the proof of the pudding is, ask any Christian today, meet a Christian and ask them, what's the mystery of God? And I'll bet you ten and a half cents they will not tell you the correct answer. Because this is not really being preached. How many messages on the mystery of God have you heard since you've been a Christian? It is important for us as God's people to understand what this mystery is. A better word for mystery is secret. God has had a secret. And this secret was so important to him that he kept it hidden. And look at verse 5. Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Now, just consider this. Adam walked with God in the garden. Adam did not know the mystery. Abraham saw God. He did not know the mystery. David had a revelation of the Lord in the heavens and he saw the building of God, a picture of it. He did not know the mystery. Moses was very tight with God. Saw his back parts pass by him. He did not know the mystery. The angels, including Gabriel, Michael, and even Lucifer, did not know the mystery. Nobody knew the mystery until this time period where God uncorked it. And Paul was one of the apostles that saw it. But he also mentions other apostles and prophets. Peter got a glimpse of it. The other apostles got a glimpse of it. I believe Paul saw it the clearest. He had an earth-shaking, ground-breaking unveiling of the mystery. And brothers and sisters, it is, it is awesome. The mystery of God is awesome. It is the explanation for the entire universe. It is the mystery of God's hidden, eternal purpose. Now, I have a confession to make. This is going to surprise you. I really do not know what the mystery of God is. And neither do I know what the eternal purpose of God is. But I got a pretty good idea. I've caught a glimpse of it. And it is that glimpse that I'm going to share with you. But we're talking about something so high, so glorious, so incredible, so vast that for me to say that I understand it is if I understand all of it would be an understatement in arrogance. I've caught a glimpse and it's changed my life. It's wrecked my life. And I will pass that on to you the best I can. The unfathomable mystery of God. Paul was not only a steward of the grace of God, he was a steward of the mystery. And now let's look at verse 6. Here he's going to open up to us 
one aspect of this mystery. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but just reading that the way it's written there without understanding what's behind it, why did God keep that a secret? What's the big deal there? That the Gentiles will be saved with the Jews. Great. That was a mystery kept for ages and ages. That's the eternal purpose of God. That's the center of God's heart. That's His dream. Well, hold on. Of which, verse 7, I, Paul, was made a minister, a servant, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. Look at verse 5. Again, I'm going to read from verse 5 to 7. I want follow my thinking here. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Everybody say, the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. Which, what is he referring to? Which? The mystery of Christ. This mystery, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now in the first century, it's been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Holy Spirit, Verse 6, to be specific, what is he talking about? The mystery mystery of Christ. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister. Now, brothers and sisters, listen. The mystery and the gospel are intertwined. God made Paul a steward of the mystery and a steward of the gospel. And if you look at a passage in Romans 16, it's verse 25. Somebody read it out loud, please. Romans 16:25. I just want to reinforce this. That the mystery, the divine mystery, and the gospel are intensely related. Romans 16:25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel... In the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. My gospel. In the preaching of Jesus Christ. Preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery. Revelation of the mystery. Alright, now stop. The preaching of Jesus Christ. The gospel. The revelation of the mystery. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. The gospel is not complete without an understanding of the mystery because the mystery is part of the gospel when you hear people say the gospel is Jesus died for your sins he was buried for three days he rose again from the dead if you believe on him you'll have eternal life you will not perish that is not the gospel it is a part of the gospel the full gospel is the mystery And Paul's gospel is what we read about in Ephesians. And how much of Ephesians so far is about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins? A little bit of it. Ephesians 1, 7 talks about our redemption by the blood of Christ. And there's a reference to it in Ephesians 2. That is important. It is very important. But brothers and sisters, it's a slice of something much larger. Can I get a little bitty amen on that? You see that. Paul is talking about this mysterious secret that was kept hidden for ages. 
you're going to have a meeting next week on the 20th. And you know what that meeting is going to be about? The divine mystery. I'm just going to add to it when I speak to you on the 27th. Now here is what I'm going to ask you to do for next week's meeting. And it has to do with what you will do this week. I'm going to give everyone a set of four passages. I would like you all to write them down. Because you're going to use them this week. Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Colossians 1, 15 to 29. 